Eusebius was a church father and a historian. And in his book, The Martyrs of Palestine, he tells the story of Romanus, a Christian seized at Antioch. Here's what he writes. When the judge had informed him that he was to die by flames with a, catch this, cheerful countenance and a most enthusiastic mind, he received the sentence and was led away. He was then tied to the stake and when the wood was heaped up about him and they were kindling the pile, only awaiting the word from the expected emperor, he exclaimed, where then is the fire? Saying this, I don't think they liked that very much. Saying this, he was summoned again before the emperor to be subjected to new tortures and therefore had his tongue cut out, which he bore with the greatest of fortitude, showing that the power of God is always present to aid those who are obliged to bear any hardship for the sake of Christ, to lighten their labors and to strengthen their devotion. How is it that Romanus and the apostles in our text today could happily face persecution for the cause of the gospel? Like they weren't just willing to suffer for the gospel, but do so joyfully. So that's where we're going. That's what we're seeking to discover. And our text is extremely helpful to that end. Here's where we're going to go. Here's the outline. They happily took a beating for the gospel because one, a purified church is a powerful church. Two, the power is actually in God's hands and so are we. And three, it is a privilege to share in Christ's sufferings. Let's look at the first. They happily took a beating for the gospel because a purified church is a powerful church. Let's look at the first few verses together. It says in verse 12, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. We see two things going on in this text. One, no one else dared join them, but two, they held the apostles in the church in high esteem and more and more people were coming to faith. What's going on here? Back in Acts chapter three, uh, Peter and John are walking up to the Temple Mount and they see a man who has uh, been paralyzed since birth, begging for change on the way up to the temple. Peter heals him and the man gets up and dances and praises God and runs throughout the temple and crowds just swarm to the apostles at the temple. They rush there. They rush to Solomon's portico, one of two sort of colonnade areas on the temple mount. But now in this instance, just a couple chapters later, they hold back. They hold back. Why? Well, probably for a couple reasons. One, after that scenario took place in Acts chapter three, we see that the religious authorities um, threatened the apostles not to speak or teach in Jesus' name. So there was this political kind of dangerous threat towards them. But secondly, in light of what we saw last week with Ananias and Sapphira, 
where they, they lied, where they had this spiritual hypocrisy about them, and they were struck down dead. Probably in this crowd, they're not only worried about the political threat, but the spiritual threat as well. Like, I might fall down dead like Ananias and Sapphira. And yet in the midst of that, all of this is going on. The church is held in high esteem and it's growing. John Stott believed this paradoxical principle is actually normal for spiritually alive churches. Here's what he wrote. On the one hand, an awestruck reserve. On the other, great missionary successes. This paradoxical situation has often recurred since then. The presence of the living God, whether manifest through preaching or miracles or both, is alarming to some and appealing to others. Some are frightened away while others are drawn to faith. Right? The threat of, of persecution from the authorities and judgment upon spiritual hypocrisy from God was unnerving to the uncommitted. God's presence in their meetings was both attractive to some and frightening to others. The threat from authorities and death of Ananias and Sapphira meant this group really became a pure church. These things were used to purify the church, even this early, early church, very early on. God is purifying them. And a purified church is a powerful church because this is what happens in the midst of discipline, oppression, and persecution. It's fascinating to read the Gospels and to discover that Jesus saved his hardest words for the biggest crowds. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus says to the crowd, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. Some of you might be listening and be like, I hate my brother. <laughs> That's not really the point. This was hyperbolic language to say, nothing can come before Jesus if you want to be his disciple. It's a hard word. And Jesus said it to the biggest crowd. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. People are like, that sounds freaky. That sounds like zombies or vampires or something. Jesus goes on, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now, this was truly a reference to the finished work of Christ on the cross and the Lord's Supper. But Jesus is delivering this word to a big crowd. And in verse 66 of John 6, it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so in this scenario, in this text, the, the threat of death from authorities and from God purified the early church, right? There's this unsettled nature, this unnerving nature to areas of gospel ministry that are truly unnerving to the uncommitted. They find the gospel risky. The committed, on the other hand, find it joy-inducing. Reliance on God and the Spirit's power are, are vitally necessary in the midst of purification. And they lead to vitality individually and corporately. You know, when the pandemic began, I, I sort of, I made a prediction, just trying to, you're trying to anticipate, like, what, what's coming? 
after, after not being able to, to have so many gatherings, what, what, what's our church gonna look like on the other side of this? And my, my prediction was that we will both shrink and grow when all is said and done. When we are able to have large-scale gatherings again, I think we will find that we have both shrunk and grown. If you are uncommitted, if you were uncommitted or, or sort of nominal, you attend or kind of a cultural Christian is like, I know people who go to church, we've always gone to church. And so we go to church, we drop into church and it's just a part of what we do. If it's more of like a calendar thing or a social thing, I, I think that we will see a lot of those individuals just gone after this. If it wasn't like I live out my faith and a part of living out my faith is, is being among other believers in the weekly gathering and all of that kind of stuff. If, it, if it's not that, but it's just sort of this cultural Christianity of we go to church, we kind of always have, and, but it doesn't live out in the rest of the week. I think we're going to lose a lot of those people because it's long enough and such a long pattern where the pattern is not going. I think, I think we, we will lose a large number of people to just not coming back again. But the other part of my prediction is this, we will come back not shrinking only, but growing also. Because the, the committed will come back with greater vitality. I have missed this. I, I need to worship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I, I want to receive the Lord's Supper. I want to be in a community of believers who are sharpening me and encouraging me and challenging me and walking with me. And it'll be sweeter. Listen, I'll take the committed on fire for Jesus remnant over the inflated numbers of nominalism any day. So what was happening in Acts 5 is there's a purifying of the church going on and a purifying is a powerful thing because the disciples that remain are like, I live for Christ. I gather with other believers and this is a meaningful, important thing. And I scatter and I scatter to be a part of God's kingdom building Throughout the week, in my sphere of influence, I want to share the gospel, live the gospel, believe the gospel. It's going to be a powerful, powerful thing. A purified church full of people who count the costs, seek to be holy as our heavenly father is holy and who live for God's glory is a church on fire. And it's the kind of church that Jesus has always used mightily throughout history and presently in our world today. How are you using this season? Are you waiting it out? Church, God's word, the Christian life, sort of set off to the side in this season because that stuff's not going on right now? Or are you embracing the purifying nature of this season? Lord, what are you doing in me? How are you wanting to use me in this unique set of circumstances? What does following you faithfully look like right now in my home, in my work, in my community? Leads right into the second piece. They happily took a beating for the gospel because the power is actually in God's hands. And so are we. Just to, to pick up the story here, they're, 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 they're um, the apostles are, are these, these wonders and signs are taking place. People are coming to Christ. And then we catch in the next section, starting in verse 17, that the high priest and some of the Sadducees are observing this. 
and the conversions taking place, the signs and wonders going on at Solomon's portico and the high priests and Sadducees arrest the apostles and they put them in prison. And we see in verse 17, it's because of jealousy. Put in prison, they're jealous of the work of God that's going on among the people through the apostles. And so they put them in prison and the apostles are put in prison. But that night, that same night, in prison, an angel shows up and opens the prison doors, brings them out, and tells them to go back to the temple where they just were and speak to the people the same words they were already speaking. All the words of life, it said. These words of life are the message of salvation and eternal life. And so they go back to the temple and start preaching the gospel again. Peter and John are, are staying true to what they said in chapter 4, verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Later on in the morning, the council, the high priests, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, they send for the apostles from prison and eventually find out that they're not in prison, but they're back preaching in the temple. And then they bring them before the council. They have two issues with the apostles. One, their first issue is that they have continued to teach in Jesus' name despite being ordered not to by the council. And second, they keep accusing them, the council, of killing Jesus. It says in verse 28, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Well, at this point, Peter responds by saying that God raised Jesus, who, yes, they killed. And God has now exalted him and repentance and forgiveness can be found in no other name than his, and that they, the apostles, were witnesses of this, and the Holy Spirit and his work is confirmation of this as well. Verse 33 tells us that hearing this, the council were enraged and they wanted to kill them. Then Gamaliel gets up and has the apostles put outside while he reasons with the council. Gamaliel was a very respected Pharisee. He didn't have political interests. His had to do with the law. He was a very respected Pharisee and one of the most famous in history, actually. And his logic was this. Others had come along claiming to be somebody, like Theodos and Judas the Galilean. And when they died, their followings dispersed and came to nothing. So he says in verse eight, if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And they take his advice. Now, now just step back a little bit and observe kind of what's gone on. The angel freeing the apostles from prison the speech by Gamaliel stating that if the apostles' work is of God, they wouldn't be able to overthrow them and might be found opposing God. Look, Luke's intention here is to demonstrate that there is one who has power over all powers, and that is God. And this is a theme traced throughout the Bible. Think of Joseph way back in Genesis. He's betrayed by his brothers, sold as a slave, eventually raised up to second in command in all of Egypt, and he helps them through a famine. And God uses him mightily. And in Genesis chapter 50, we read that God meant all of the things that he went through for good. Moses killed a guy at one point, flees Egypt, is shepherding. God approaches him and says, go to Egypt, go to Pharaoh, go to the place you ran from. 
and look Pharaoh in the eye and tell him to let my people go. And Moses was this stuttering guy who's like, I'm wanted in Egypt. I'm not going back. And I'm not a good speaker. But the point of all of it was, yeah, God is with you. God is in control. You don't need to be afraid of Pharaoh. I am with you. David, little young David, goes to bring his brothers lunch. And he finds them quaking in fear because there's a giant in the opposing army. And none of the Israelite army will fight him. And so David's like, I'll fight him because I trust in God. And God will win the battle. Later, Samuel is looking for a, uh, for a, a king to succeed Saul. And he goes to, to Jesse, uh, David's father, and all these brothers are lined up of David. And the more likely ones that should, you know, maybe become king are all passed by. And Samuel's like, where, do you have any others? And there's like, well, there's little David out in the field. Bring him. Because it's not really about little David. It's about God on his throne. The same is said of Jesus, of course. In Jesus' ministry, eventually he was arrested and we read in John 19, he's before Pilate, the the Roman authority in Jerusalem. And Pilate said to Jesus, do you not know that I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Luke and the whole Bible want to show you that real power lies in God's hands, and so do we. A number of years ago now, I was uh, on a trip to China. We were visiting missionaries in different parts of China, and at one point we were in northern China. We were observing uh, the ministry of some missionaries there and even getting to uh, see an underground church in China, which it turns out often aren't actually underground, by the way. And at one point, the place we were staying, we heard all this honking and commotion and cars like whizzing by, and we discover that it's the Chinese authorities that are not happy with our presence there, and these black cars with China flags on them are whizzing around our compound, honking, and it was kind of terrifying. And they told us, go into your rooms and just wait there. The authorities come in and they're talking with the missionaries out there. We don't know what's going on. Eventually we're called out to the common area and we're told that they're going to take our picture. And so they they put us all close together and they're going to take a picture. Interestingly, it was kind of funny. At one point, uh, one of the Chinese authorities like jumped in in the front and was like this just before the picture was taken. And we're like, is that a good thing? Is that, don't know. It was just a thing. And eventually after more talking, they left and, um, we're like, what was that all about? And they're like, well, they're just going to look you up and make sure that you are who you say you are and that your story, they're going to look you up on the internet, figure, you, figure out if you really are who you say you are. It was, a, it was quite the ordeal. And we all sat down and we were talking about what had happened. And, 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 and one, of, one of the people in our group asked, like, how, asked the missionaries, how do you live here in the midst of all of this? One of the missionaries responded, she said, it's not actually that hard. They think they're in control, but we know better. You know better, right, Christian? Who can thwart the plans of God? Believing that God is in charge is a really freeing thing 
in the life of the Christian. One of my favorite things about being a dad is that my boys love to jump to me. <laughs> Whenever they're like ele elevated, standing on a platform, like the only thing they think to do is like run and jump towards dad because dad will grab them. Go up a few stairs, jump at dad and dad will catch them. You're at the swimming pool, like ideal, right? They're gonna jump off the edge. They want you to catch them. And they, they, they do that, even run upstairs. I'm hardly even ready and they just jump ready to catch them. They just trust that dad will catch them. And, and listen, I'm lanky. <laughs> I, I'm lanky. Will you trust your loving heavenly father will catch you? He is loving and he is powerful and nothing happens outside of his will. We are taught this in the scriptures. What, what should that mean in our lives? See, what you're meant to do with that knowledge is follow him fearlessly. He's delivered the gospel to you and a commission to you. So spend your life on those things and trust that God is going to catch you. That he's in charge. He is loving and he is strong. The apostles believed that. And that's how they could respond in scenarios like this. Thirdly, finally, they happily took a beating for the gospel because it is a privilege to share in Christ's sufferings. Picking it up in verse 40, we see this. Right after Gamaliel has given his speech, they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now the beating that they received here was likely 40 lashes minus one. Here's what that would have meant. There would have been a whip, leather, with three strands on the end, and they would have received 13 lashes on their bare chests, and 26 lashes on their bare backs, and its effects would be to split your skin open. And then they released the apostles. And upon their release, the apostles put their shirts back on, linked arms, and sang praises to God for the privilege of being beaten for Jesus' sake. They were rejoicing for two reasons. One, it was an opportunity to demonstrate their loyalty to Jesus, and two, it meant that they were counted worthy to share in the sufferings of Jesus. This is precisely what the Apostle Paul says in addition to these apostles when he writes in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, trash, in order that I may gain Christ. He goes on in verse 10 to say, that I may know him and that the power and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Okay. If you were freed from prison, would you go back to the place where they found you and do the thing they found you doing when they caught you? Or would you run? If you were whipped repeatedly, would you smile and sing as you walked down the street because you counted it, a, counted it a joy to suffer for the name of Christ? 
And would you still preach? And as the text describes, go door to door sharing Christ. Would you continue? And would your passion after all of this for the mission not subside, but rise infinitely? These apostles had decided that Jesus was worth everything they were willing to give, including their very lives. They, they had found his vision for their lives and his kingdom to be the most compelling beauty on the planet. And so they made it the priority of their, their lives and they were fully devoted followers of Jesus. This is how the early church saw persecution. A privilege, a privilege. Helen Rosevere graduated with her medical degree from Cambridge and went to be a medical missionary in the Congo in 1953. She saw medicine as a companion of evangelism and she established a training center where nurses would be taught the Bible and basic medicine and then sent back to their villages to handle routine cases, teach preventative medicine and serve as lay evangelists. Rosevere recalled how she had only been a Christian for half an hour when someone told her that being a Christian would probably involve suffering. Later in life, she affirmed that statement, saying that Christians should be willing to bear a cross in their lives. If you read her story, you will see that she faced obstacle after obstacle. At one point during the political unrest in the Congo, she had been captured, held hostage, and even raped multiple times. In spite of some harrowing experiences, Rosevere still knows only praise and thanksgiving. She said, it is over 60 years since I first came to know the Lord Jesus as my savior, and in all that time, he has never failed me. He has never let me down. She continued, we talk about counting the cost, but there isn't really a cost. It is sheer privilege to follow the master. If he indwells me, I have got to go wherever he wants me to go, and that will involve suffering. So what gave her the courage to suffer for the Lord was knowing what he had done for her. She said, he suffered for me. Am I willing to suffer for him? The word privilege has underlined everything for me, and it is all privilege. Christians can take a beating with joy because Jesus took the ultimate beating for us. Our sin on his back, nailed to the cross, and we bear it no more. So when we put our lives in Jesus' hands, we may get the nail scars too, but we most definitely get our sins forgiven and resurrection. So we can count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. We can happily take a beating for the gospel like the apostles because a purified church is a powerful church. The power is actually in God's hands, and so are we. And it's a privilege to share in the sufferings of Christ. What a perspective. And yes, 
what a privilege. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, I find those words of Helen Rosevere to be so true. We're told to count the cost, but what we discover as we give our lives over to Jesus is there is no cost. It's all gain. It's all joy. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your enabling spirit. Thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ to share burdens with, to share joy with. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would make us courageous. I pray that you would find us faithful. I pray, Lord, that we would recognize that you're purifying us in this season, that we would recognize you have the power and we are safe in your hands. And Lord Jesus, I pray that if and when we suffer, we would count it joy, a privilege. Please continue to do that work in our lives and in our church. In Jesus' name, amen.